Hey, what's up, Blazer fans? Welcome to We Have a Take the What podcast. I am Tara Bowen Biggs, and I am joined, as always, by my friend Rose Harding. Hi, Rose. Hi, Tara. How are you doing today? I'm doing real good, and I'm doing extra good because we have a guest joining us today, and I'm really excited to hear what we think about what we can learn from her. It's Caitlin Cooper from Basketball She Wrote Patreon, which is a new endeavor for her. So welcome, Caitlin. And do you want to tell folks just a little bit about uh, Basketball She Wrote right off the top? I'm sure. Yeah, I'm glad to be back on the podcast. It's been a little while. I always enjoy doing podcasts with all of the various podcasters in Portland. I always have good interactions with Blazers fans, so this is fun. Um, yeah, so Indy Cornrows came to an end. That's where I wrote at Vox Media for around 10 years. That came to an end in February, so I switched over to doing my own venture, which is called... You can find it at patreon.com slash basketball she wrote. And the way that I like to term it is I write about basketball through the lens of the Pacers. So I think that people who just enjoy basketball in general can come over there and still find something that they're going to like and enjoy. And hopefully, like, I don't want to act like, you know, I'm going to teach you something. But hopefully if you come and read it, maybe you'll notice something you didn't notice before about the Pacers. So that's kind of what it is. Great. Uh, Rose, you want to take us through the icebreaker? I completely skipped it. Oh yeah, totally. Let's let's talk about the icebreaker. So I was thinking uh last week Tara and I went to the pumpkin patch together um and met up with a bunch of our friends that are Blazer fan friends and that was very exciting. So today I wanted to ask people, what's your favorite fall activity? Okay, so mine is going to be somewhat similar to that. I don't know, are you guys familiar with who Johnny Appleseed is? <laughs> Do you know like, who that is? It's like the, the fable, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So supposedly he passed away in a city in indiana so they hope they have a johnny appleseed festival there every year so i hadn't been to it since before the pandemic but my sister and i decided to go at the end of september so we went up there and they just have like lots of like types of fall food and crafts and different stuff to walk around and do so that's what we did we hadn't done it in like five or six years so whether that's actually his grave or not whether any of this is actually a real story i don't know but that's what we did makes for a fun festival though for sure that's awesome i feel like i went through like a mini johnny appleseed phase where i was trying to learn like about where the uh where the tale came from of and like did this guy usually actually go across the country um spreading apple seeds and apple trees have you ever like at the at the festival do they have like the truth telling section where they talk about (laughs) whether or not it's real it was funny because when we were on our way driving there, there was a segment on it and people were talking about like the idea that the seeds were planted to to create apple trees and that they harvested the apples. And in reality, during the time period, it was more so that the apples were being distilled for like alcohol because the water wasn't safe to drink at that point in time. So that was really more of the purpose of it, I guess. They they actually don't know if that's where he's buried or not, but they there's a grave site there. They, they distilled apples to turn them into alcohol because they needed to drink alcohol because they couldn't drink water is that what you're saying yeah because the water wasn't safe to drink so everyone just walked around drunk all the time (laughs) i guess so what a time being a pioneer was a safe Uh, time in our country you definitely took your chances also very hallmarky i have to um say Caitlin to have gone up to the Hallmark Festival. You and I have had some Hallmark conversations before. Although I have to say I've been watching a lot of reality TV and it sort of has eaten into my Hallmark time. But Christmas season is coming, so I'll I'll start doing that soon enough. Um fall activity for me, people who follow me on Instagram will instantly know what it is and that is taking pictures of cars that match the trees they are parked under. I am getting lots of great pictures of red cars parked under red trees, but this is a personal plea to people who drive yellow and orange cars. Please get out there and be responsible and park your cars under yellow and orange trees so that I can get pictures of them. I know you're out there. Please, I'm I'm begging you. I need more yellow and orange car content. And I'm pretty sure the next car that I buy is going to have to either be yellow or orange just so I can help make up for this incredible deficit but i have to say red car owners you're doing amazing and i love it thank you so much i'm sorry tara i'm not helping you here because i i'm a silver car owner which is not really a tree um but i was going to say like i feel like most people who drive yellow cars like get some crap about driving a yellow car at least from some people because yellow is a controversial car color and it like 
I think people think there's a personality type that goes along with yellow cars, but this is their time to shine. This is their time. It's fall, it's fall colors. It's, there's a ton of yellow trees. It's it's their time to to contribute to our community with their yellow car driving. Definitely. Well, how about you, Rose? My favorite fall. Well, okay, I have two favorite fall activities. One, it's transitioning back to hot coffee because I drink like iced coffee in um, the summer and um, like iced tea. And so transitioning back to hot drinks is like this way that I like prepare myself for the winter and I I don't know like it just feels it just feels like I'm like making my way to to like the cool season which is just very welcome for me because I like wearing sweaters like people who know me know that I wear I'll wear a sweater in June I'll wear a sweater in July I'll wear a sweater in August but it's not very comfortable so this is like my time to like wear a sweater and be comfortable um so sweater sweater weather is like my big thing and hot drinks like just I like to like get cozy. It's like follows my like my preparation to cozy. Um, so that I think is like the thing that I like the most about it, which isn't really an activity, I guess. But like it's like a psychological shift that I do for like my favorite season, because like for me, I actually think that in Portland, people come here and fall in love with Portland in the summer. But for me, fall is the best season and I wait for it like all year long it's like the the trees start changing but we also still have like great like conifers like so like we still have the greenness and like that like I, I think the, I think of like like conifers is like really like I don't know like winter folly kinds of trees because they look really beautiful and like snow and whatever but um so we get like the green and then we get the, the other like deciduous trees that change their leaves and then drop them and like because Portland has done such a good job of like preserving trees in our urban area like we get a ton of beautiful color in our city. And I don't think that that's true for a lot of cities of our size. Cause like if you go to like San Francisco or like New York, like they have those things, but they're like very carefully planned to be where they are. And Portland, it's like, they almost make it challenging. Like if you want to cut down a tree here as like a homeowner, it's really hard to do it because they don't want you cutting down trees. So we have just a ton of trees everywhere and so if you like go down to like where the river is and like take pictures like looking across the river like it will be a beautiful a beautiful sight no matter where you look when you get like a whole like view of the city so yay fall you've, best season you've sold me now i need to come and see all of the pretty portland landscapes come we'll sh we'll show you all of the all of the trees and then all of the cars parked under them <laughs> I agree too, because I wear boots all year round, but I look a lot more appropriate wearing the boots in the fall than I do when I wear them in the summer. Totally get that. I'm so glad that to hear that you have so many positive interactions with Portland fans, because um, I think a lot of Portland fans are secretly hoping that someday you'll decide that you also want to write about the Blazers, <laughs> uh, because you, 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 you're, I don't um, just your your articles i always i do always learn stuff from them even if it's not about the portland trailblazers because of just like your eye and, and watching for people and uh part of the reason that we brought you on here is uh because you watched for a number of years one of portland's newest players and another favorite fall tradition around here is getting to know who the new players on the blazers are so right now, Portland has Malcolm Brogdon on the team. Hopefully he'll be, it seems that he'll be around for a little while. He's one of those players in the um, Damian Lillard trade that everyone was like, well, well, he's going to be traded too. But so far he hasn't been. And maybe he will be later. But right now at 1120 on Sunday, he's still on the team. So we thought we better talk about him first, get to know a little bit about him. So, uh, Caitlin, what can you tell us about uh, Malcolm Brogdon from his time on the Pacers and then maybe what you think he might be able to contribute to a young rebuilding team like the Blazers are right now? Yeah, I mean, I think by the time he left Indiana, I mean, obviously the Pacers were going through a transition mode and ready to veer toward a rebuild. So it makes sense. It made sense for them to kind of move on. But I think he was kind of overextended in the role that he had with the Pacers as being their full time point guard. I kind of positionally refer to him as a 1.75. I think he's more of a two than he is a one. Um, he's not necessarily like when you went from watching Malcolm run offense to watching Tyrese run offense, I compared it to like when you first get glasses and you have like the definition of like, oh, that's what that's supposed to look like. But Malcolm's like he can when he's off the ball, he shoots the ball better. Generally, he's a very aggressive driver, like he's going to get two feet in the paint. And I think that's why he was a little bit more successful last year playing for Boston, because he kind of took 
two steps back in order to take some steps forward. Like I'm not going to be playing the starting point guard role anymore. I'm a sixth man. I'm playing off the gravity of others. And that kind of leveraged what he was going to be best doing. And obviously like injuries have followed him every season in every city that he's been in. He didn't finish the season last year. I don't know what the status is with his elbow or whatever the situation is right now. If there's been reporting on that coming out of Portland, I haven't followed it, but like, I think in terms of that too, like his body not wearing down as the season goes on, it was important that he not play as many minutes and be as extended as he was. So given that the Blazers already have, you know, Scoot Henderson is kind of the future in waiting. They have Shaden Sharp, they have Anthony Simons, like in that regard, that should help him, I would think, to preserve his body a little bit more than what was the case going on in Indiana when he kind of had to shoulder that independently. I don't think I realized that um, he was that he was like the full time point guard in Indiana. I mean, admittedly, like we don't watch a lot of Pacers games in the West because um, mm-hmm. a lot of the times they're happening like early for us um, and they're not always on TV. But so I didn't realize he was like the full full time point guard before they got Tyrese Halliburton, and I guess it makes sense that like everybody was really excited when they made that trade, um, because you know like like Portland knows we know what it's like to have one guy who shoulders the entire burden of that position, and it's very hard, and I think it's like very like physically and mentally taxing, um, and it's also hard because it's like then they have to play a ton of minutes, like when like. Dame's Dame's usage in Portland for a long time was like, I don't know, like 39 minutes or something like that a game. Like you've always played so much. And when you don't have another point guard that can like really help share the load, you just have to play a ton of minutes. Yeah. And in Brogdon's case, like when he was in Milwaukee, I know that he felt like after playing around Giannis's gravity and playing off of at times, even Eric Bledsoe, that was something that he wanted when he came to Indiana. I think that was part a motivating factor. It was a sign and trade, but he also chose to go there. And I think just by the end of it, you know, I don't know if Portland fans will know this either, but when he left the Pacers, according to him, he was presented with a choice of being traded to the Raptors or being traded to the Celtics. And according to him, he chose and told the Pacers, I want to be traded to the Celtics because he wanted to have a chance to win a championship. So I'm going to be interested to see how that plays with him, like playing on a team that's kind of going into a rebuild mode. And like, I'm sure like just from my you know experience watching Brogdon, I think he'll do and say the right things, especially because he might be viewing this as somewhat of like an audition for himself, for other teams and proving that he's healthy. But like, it was very clear last summer that he wanted to go to a team that was going to be a contender where he would have the opportunity to compete. So that's kind of another aspect of it as well. I kind of wonder you, so you said that he wanted to go to Boston because he wanted a chance for a ring. Um, And we all kind of expected him to be traded. I think, I think a lot of people expected him to be traded after we acquired him in that um, true holiday trade. Um, But based on the way the interviews have come out of like training camp, it's been like pretty clear that we're not trading him right away. I, he, he, he made some comments directly related to that, where he was like, I know that everybody, you know, thinks I, I, I might, I, I'm going to be traded or whatever, but he's like, he made, he, he, like you said, he said all the right things where he's like, you know, this, I want to be here. They want me here. This is a role I think I can do really well at this point in my career, which is, you know, where he can still play, but also he has a lot of other things that he can give to like help, um, help, uh, impart wisdom on a younger generation of players um but it makes me wonder if based on what our our new gm i guess he's not new joe cronin has been our gm for like three three years now or two and a half years now um but it makes me wonder if they like made a a mutual decision together to like highlight what's great about him still and then trade him at the deadline so they can trade him to a contender because a lot of the times I think you have a better chance to end up on a contender if you're traded around the trade deadline than like traded at the beginning of the season because all of a sudden like buyers who didn't know that they were buyers like pop up right around the trade deadline and players are um players that like didn't necessarily have like a a ton of value in the off season suddenly have a lot of value at like the trade deadline because people are looking to fill the holes that their current team has and now they've seen them play for you know several dozen games and they have a better idea of what the needs are going to be like I kind of so anyway I kind of wonder if that's like the goal of of keeping him here um it does help him potentially get to a, a contender and we also do need a vet like Tara you were talking over a long time about how you were worried that there aren't like winners. 
on this team. Like not a lot of guys who have been winning and not a lot of guys who have been playing very long in this league. So anyway, that was just what I was thinking when I realized that they were like very explicitly talking about how he is staying, at least for now. And that might in part be too, like from both sides perspectives that, you know, there was reporting out of Boston that there were some sore spots there that he was, you know, effectively kind of traded to the Clippers and then they pulled out of that deal and then ended up Marcus Smart end up ends up going to Memphis instead. And like and because he's been dealing with that injury and there was, you know, still reporting about whether he was going to be healthy coming into the season, it might just be like, hey, you need to actually go out there and, and prove that you're healthy and can play because that was why according to the Clippers side, why they pulled out of it is they didn't feel confident in his physical, I guess. So it might just need to be that both sides need time with each other in order to find another landing spot. I'm curious what you think, um, like, you know, given that we're all thinking that it's likely there will be a, a trade down the way and the Blazers are like a brand new competing team. How, what ideas do you have about how the the coaching team might use him you know, like how much he might play. I like, I don't believe he's going to start. And it seems to me he has like a really different playing style than Scoot does. So what are some of the ways that you think that he might be um, able to help the team in this, in this short term? Um, I don't know. Just, do you have any thoughts on how that might look? You know, it's somewhat curious because Scoot and Tyrese are obviously very different players, but they both are wired to play fast. And you could tell that very soon after Tyrese got traded to the Pacers that like the minute the shot goes in, even off a make, like he's clapping for inbound passes. He wants to get to the other end. And like I saw quotes from Scoot coming out of media day talking about like, I don't know how many plays we're going to have to call because like we want to run, run, run like they want to get out and play at a different play style than what's been the case under Dame, where it was much more of a half court offense and like so when Malcolm came back late in that season after Tyrese had been traded for there was kind of a push and pull there because Malcolm is a much more methodical player um they he doesn't really push the ball he doesn't really push the pace and like early in that season Rick Carlisle was like kind of doing some pace control from the sidelines in terms of play calling and that had kind of waned a little bit but like I am kind of curious to see how that's going to play out because the rest of this roster is you know full for for Portland is full of guys who are like bouncy and really want to get out and run and like now that you have all these lob threats and like none of that really describes Malcolm all that well but just like in terms of having him as off ball gravity, like if Anthony is going to be, you know, kind of the engine of the offense, like I would assume that it will be like a lot of Anthony, DeAndre and pick and roll. Like Malcolm can certainly play off that on the weak side and be cutting into the lane, be driving into the lane. And he draws gravity just with how much you know pressure he puts on the rim in terms of being a driver. So I would look at it like that. Like I just think Brogdon's ideal role mainly is is in a spot up situation rather than kind of micromanaging the offense but depending upon who they see as the lead ball handler early on that could that could play a part but like just just in the sense that like I just see some parallels there between you know wanting to turn the keys over to Tyrese and how some of the offense ended up tilting more towards Brogdon's play style late in the year and it became very evident to me that like hey you know they're probably going to need to split this up and fully make this like Tyrese's team like I didn't anticipate that he would be on the roster the next year. Yeah, when I look at how Malcolm, Malcolm Brogdon plays, I don't see his play style as far as I can tell really fitting in with what it seems like this new team is trying to be. It seems like he seems to have have a, a fairly you know, not redundant, but you know, his his shooting, you know, is obviously a thing and like we have Anthony for shooting. Um I guess we've heard this thing called defense is there and <laughs> we're, 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 we've heard that this team is going to start playing it. Is there anything that he brings defensively? Even if it's like in my like little Pollyanna brain, I think that maybe some of these guys who've been on the court for a number of years can at least like tell scoot what it's like, what it feels like to try to play against Patrick Beverly. I mean, do you think that um, Malcolm uh, could bring anything useful to young players who are trying to get their feet under them and maybe learn how to play defense in the league. I mean, I think it's usually pretty helpful. Like if there's multi players in a trade from the same team, like the sense that Brogdon's coming over with Robert Williams and they have existing experience playing together, especially on the defensive end of the floor, I think will help. I think that the general book on Malcolm is that you don't want him defending at the point of attack. 
Um, he's not very good with screen navigation. He comes out flat-footed and he gets beat by quicker guards. And that's probably okay because you guys already have a smaller backcourt. Like Anthony and Scoot is already like two guys who are under six foot four. So Brogdon's ideal role is to be playing up against wings and kind of be using his strength. Like there's even some certain games with the Pacers where they might deliberately put him on Carl Anthony Towns. Because like Towns is a guy who kind of struggles against guards in the post strangely more so than big. So you can use somebody like Brogdon who has a very strong core to do that type of a role so like in that sense it might actually be helpful because like you're gonna have a little bit more size to play around them depending upon what lineups are out there and I do think that Brogdon's a smart defender and he's played in a lot of different types of schemes you know he's played in Boston scheme he's played under Nate Bjorkren scheme he's played in Rick Carlisle scheme and as well as you know up in Milwaukee in their more uh, conservative drop scheme as well so just having that degree of experience depending upon how Chauncey envisions this team playing defense I think you know, it always is helpful to have those types of veterans in the locker room. Cause like, even with the Pacers last year, I know a lot of the younger guys, like James Johnson, wasn't playing George Hill, wasn't playing, but they said how valuable it was to have those types of players on the roster who have been on a lot of different teams and just have experience both on and off the court to give advice. So I think that Brogdon can probably fill that role. I'll say I, he definitely seems like a really polished communicator. Like when I've seen him interviewed just in training camp, um, I remember I so I remember looking up when he first came here and um I saw that they in his Wikipedia article for whatever that's worth they, he's he's nicknamed the president because he's very has a very professional demeanor and I think he has a master's degree um from UVA in public policy so like and his, and he comes with like a family of lawyers like everyone in his family yep. is a lawyer except for his mom is like is like a like a chair of like an academic institution at yeah, Howard I think yeah yeah, or more Morehouse. It was Morehouse. A Morehouse, yes, yes. But you know, like that—that's a—that's fa- a family that's p- very public facing that has to do a lot of speaking. And um, I was just thinking about how like that professional demeanor also is a really nice model for young players because you think about the way like the league is now, and like you're always under a microscope, and you know people are always like parsing your words and trying to figure out what it means, and they just love finding like like hot, hot moments in front of the camera. And I, I just feel like that's a really good model for something that's like basketball related, but not actually basketball on the court and how to conduct yourself um, publicly as a player. Yeah. I mean, he's very diplomatic. I mean, during in the run-up leading up to the bubble, he's part of the Players Association. He's a vice president of the Players Association. So I felt like he really threaded the needle really well between guys who didn't feel comfortable playing and guys who wanted to play for the sake of that being a platform that they felt that they could use and walk that line really well. And he's also very outspoken. It matters to him a lot that he's from Atlanta and that his grandfather, you know, marched with Martin Luther King Jr. So, you know, I, I think that he uses all of that And then that's kind of the dichotomy with him too, though, because like, you know, the Pacers during the year before they kind of broke up that core when it's Sabonis and Miles Turner and Brogdon and TJ Warren and Karis LeVert, like their front office was fairly open a lot of the time. Like we don't have a vocal leader and them kind of thinking like, oh, we really miss having like Al Jefferson at the end of our bench as a veteran because that was somebody who kind of would be more vocal in the locker room. So like as diplomatic as Brogdon can be and as much as you appreciate like a lot of his social opinions and that he's willing to come out and be outspoken about a lot of that, like a lot of what came from the team as far as like what his leadership was on and off the court in terms of how vocal he was with teammates wasn't always quite, I think, what the Pacers were necessarily hoping for. But, you know, it is two years later and now maybe because he's entering into a situation where he knows going in, like, I am one of the oldest players here. This is a rebuild and this is something that I can give. Like, I think that there are times where players start to embrace that for different reasons. So, yeah, he is the oldest player on the roster. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I figured, but I wasn't sure. I was trying to think of who else was on the team. I'm like, I'm, I'm betting Grant. it's probably Brogdon. Yeah. He and Jeremy Grant are are the two oldest, but yeah, he he is the oldest. Yeah, it's a it's a whole different world. I mean, it's it's personally I find it very exciting because obviously the Damian Lillard was you know a fantastic era, and Damian himself like brought so many things to this team. But, you know, as a lover of new things new, <laughs> all the time, I can't wait to see what they're going to look like. And one of the things that a lot of us have been talking about in Portland as well is, are we finally going to learn like who Chauncey Billups is as a coach and like what he wants to do as opposed to what he's doing with the players that are on the roster? This feels like 
a roster that maybe is built more for the style of play that he wants to do. So that's one thing that a lot of us are watching this year is not just like, what's it going to look like, uh, uh, you know, but like how, you know, what kind of a coach is Chauncey? Cause he's going into his third year now. And those first two years, we like really can't make many uh, <laughs> judgments based on, you know, just like the chaos, the other kind of chaos <laughs> that, that was happening. Um, so one of the things that we did last year, because we were hoping that we could learn about what kind of play style um, coach Billups was going to try to go after is we chose some game to game statistics that uh, for us to, tr uh, to track and we tracked them and I tweeted what they were after every game. And so the exercise that we want to go through now is to choose which stats we are going to track this year. So just to remind everybody what we tracked last year and um, maybe just a, a second of why um, last year we tracked dunks because I love dunks and that one is like not up for negotiation. We are tracking dunks again this year. <laughs> um, we wanted to know if the team was going to um, move the ball around more. So we uh, tracked both assists and uh, team passing. We have seen the rebounding decline year after year in this team. And so we tracked rebounds last year. We also last year were wondering how many rookie minutes we were going to get because we weren't sure if Chauncey was the kind of coach who would play, who would trust rookies to play. Well, that was, <laughs> wasn't given much of a choice. Eventually. We also tracked fast break points to see if this younger athletic team with shade on it was going to run a lot. So we tracked fast break points. And then finally we tracked um, speed and distance. Cause we wanted to know if they were going to, in addition to moving the ball more, were they going to as dudes <laughs> move around more? So those are really fun to track game by game, but we have a whole different team to look at this year. So I'm loving to hear from you too. What um, what stats you think we should track this year to help try to figure out what kind of a team this is? And like I said, dunks non-negotiable. We're counting dunks. I mean, I think that the dunks should be non-negotiable with this particular iteration of the roster. Like, I think that's a good one for people to look at because you do actually have two bigs who are lob threats much more than what... Yusuf Nurkic would have been like I did look at how many alley oops he's finished and in the last three years I think it was one so uh, between Robert Williams and between Aiden like that that and it's good too for when you have young ball handlers because like having a lob threat provides like a safety net that if you drive into the paint and don't necessarily have a plan that creates an easy outlet for you of something that can cover up like if while you're still developing in terms of playmaking. So um, I think that that one would be fun to, to cover and just because I think it is a team that's going to get up and down the floor. So, you know, I think that the dunks and the fast break points are still very applicable to this particular roster. Um, We actually, for the first time, heard that they were practicing lobs like in practice like one of the brickles and dam the sideline reporter asked yeah. at a practice she said she said coach i i hear you're practicing lobs <laughs> my heart swelled like five times i was so excited when i heard that because with the damian i've long asserted this with damian lillard why would you want him throwing lobs when he could just throw it in like <laughs> he's he's a three point shooter you know he just that's what he does like he sees the basket and the ball goes in he's such a good shooter so um I'm excited to to, to see about the lobs and then I'm, I'm wondering if I don't know if you have any thoughts on this I'm just springing this on you right now DeAndre Ayton last year had 110 dunks and I I I listened to like some um Phoenix podcasts and they were like DeAndre Ayton's always passing up dunks. And I'm like, are you kidding? If we had a guy who had over a hundred dunks in a season, I would be so excited. So like, how does, how does it work when you have multiple big men? Do you think that they might be playing together? In which case are they going to be in each other's way for dunks? Or if those two are playing together, Robert Williams and um, DeAndre Ayton, do you think they could um, exist together on the floor? So that I mean, I dunk. think some of the frustration from Phoenix fans with Aiden, and I know this a little bit just because the Pacers did give him an offer sheet um, a summer ago that Phoenix ended up matching, is that like in terms of, you know, like the Valley lob, that critical play where he caught the, the lob pass and that dunk on that out of bounds play when the Suns went to the finals, like he can be a lob threat as the role man. I think some of the frustration comes in is when he catches it 
and he needs to make a post move or a two dribble move and and he'll settle for a hook shot in areas where you know he could take one power dribble and go for a dunk like he doesn't play with as much force as what you always want him to play with i think that's a pretty valid criticism of his game but yes like in terms of the raw numbers by compared to Nurkic like I do think it will be a pretty big difference going from him to Aiton in terms of how you can use him I would suspect that Chauncey like I haven't heard his commentary but I would guess that they probably envision Robert Williams as being the backup five and just in part because of what his own injury status has been like it might be to his betterment to be coming in in a smaller role and be backing up Aiton but if you did play him together I think it would be case because Robert Williams like doesn't really do anything outside of the restricted area it would have to be like either Aiton is going to be doing more as a popper or you're going to be using Aiton and like the short roll and Robert Williams is going to be standing in the dunker spot and that's kind of a thing with Aiton too is that like when he has the ball in space he needs to improve with his decision making there so like as a short roller like can he use a little push shot can he put the ball on the floor and force the defense to respond to him could he even hope to throw a pass to Robert Williams in those types of situations and like I think if like if I was picking a stat that I was going to watch for this team like it isn't necessarily a team stat and I think sometimes when you're watching a young team you are kind of looking more for individual numbers is eight in self-creation so like if you go I think the way you can locate that if you go to NBA.com is that you would go to player stats and then general and then pick scoring and it will show you the difference between assisted and unassisted field goals. So I think he's generally in his career been around that like 80% of his field goals are assisted and like granted he's a center like he's going to be doing a lot as a play finisher but like now that he's going to a younger team and he isn't playing on a squad with Devin Booker and Kevin Durant and Chris Paul as the top options, can he kind of spread his wings a little bit and maybe show that he can do something with like a two dribble move with the Blazers or like a little bit more out of the post where he has to put the ball down more than once in order to get to the rim or like, will he be willing to do a little bit more with his left hand where if he has an option to drive to his left, will he do that instead of being quite as like automatic that like, I always go to the hook shot with my right. I always spin the other way to my jump shot. So like, I would definitely look for Aiton in terms of self-creation, especially now since he's referred to himself as dominating, like, will he be dominating in terms of what else he will be doing? I have lots of questions about that nickname because I have really strong feelings that like, you don't get to pick your own nickname. And I'm like, who gave you that nickname? Where did it come from? Because if you picked it for yourself, I mean, I know the guys try to do this, but I just think that like nicknames come to you. You don't go to the store and buy them. I'm sure people in Phoenix had a lot to think about that nickname. Because like another one for eight and two is I would look at how many free throws is he getting? Because his free throw rate of being like around two for a center is quite low, especially on a center who averages over 10 field goal attempts per game. Like that has to be like one of the lowest rates in the NBA. So like if he wants to be dominating, I would be looking at the self-creation numbers and his free throw attempt rate. I actually think free throw attempt would be something that would be really good to track for the whole uh, might be good to track for the whole team and see if how that changes over the year. You know, because those young guys are going to be like trying to figure out how to how to get to the line. I'm I'm kind of interested in maybe just like the, I mean, number of three throws per game. Is there another way to track free throws besides number of free throws per game? That's really straightforward and easy to do. But I'm just I'm curious about whether or not they they start to learn skills. Like yeah, you know, if you go if you foul. go to like four factors on NBA's website, they'll have oh. a free throw attempt rate, which is free throws per field goal attempt, and then you can compare that to the rest of the league and where they rank. It'll be under is four it, factors. Okay, I love that. Is it? Do you think it's too early in these guys' careers? Considering I think there's like four rookies and there's like two, a couple guys who are just barely starting. Is it too too early to start worrying about that uh, rate right now, or should we? Is it? Would it be worth it to go ahead and follow and see if what comes of it? Yeah, I mean, I might be a little bit. Uh... <laughs> Uh, guided by the fact that Benedict Mathern was so good at that last year. Like it's not often that rookie guards average over free five free throw attempts per game. Like that's really rare, but like, I definitely think it's applicable for, for a N and like in Scoot's case, like for him, I might be looking mainly at like, what is his pull up to conversion rate? Like, I don't think it necessarily right away because like, we know what his shooting limitations are. So like, it isn't even so much for the three for me because he is so quick and has, he's so buttery in that area 
is like, can he put the ball on the floor and hit a pull up too? And will that force the defense to even take like a step closer to him? Because if, if they come a step closer, he's getting to the rim. Like that's just what type of player he is. So I think for him, that's what number that I would be keeping like a month over month eye on is what his pull up to conversion rate is. If you look at the shot tracking data. Especially because, like, I, again, I don't know how Chauncey envisions it, but, like, if it were me, I would be letting Anthony do a lot of the lead ball handling early on rather than Shaden or rather than Scoot. I'd be putting Scoot on the weak side and kind of letting him figure out things there before I would be giving him a lot of lead ball handler responsibilities, especially since I think that it's pretty likely that he'll see a lot of unders early on. So that's why I think the pull-up two conversion rate could be valuable to look at for him. I love it. I'm writing all this down. Kara, I have something that I was thinking about that I think we should track this year. So given the, like, we have a ton of young guys, like, like, you know, we have a bunch of rookies and like, you know, Shaden's only been in the league a year, like, and we hear that they're going to start trying to play more defense. I think we need to track fouls <laughs> because like, I feel like that's one of the big things that like young guys always come into the league, like trying to figure out what's a foul here because it's very different than if you played in college or like some of these guys, quite frankly, like didn't play in college. Like, so what's a foul in the G league should hopefully look like what, what a foul is in the NBA, but we know that the game is going to be very different. A lot of the games are going to be very different. And like, you know, Shaden didn't really play in college and Ant didn't really play in college. I mean, Ant's, I guess he's been here long enough. He he probably knows. But like a lot of these guys, like, I think are going to have to have some growing pains about like what's a foul here in the NBA and how are people going to scam them off you? Because that's also something you have to learn to protect against. And I'm curious if they get better at it over the course of the year with more playing time to figure out like in those game situations, how to like one, protect yourself from getting fouls scammed off you and how to actually play tough defense without fouling because that I think that that is hard <laughs> no, I think that's probably always a good thing to look at with rookies I think that's something that about almost everybody has to adjust to is figuring out you know how forceful can you be what what's actually going to lead to you getting a foul called um, so that that one's probably valid for any young any young team in the NBA Okay, we're getting all kinds of good stuff here. Um, one thing that has come out of the training camp is pace. I feel like they've said pace almost as many times as they've said vibes in all of these interviews. And since we can't measure vibes, I think we better me measure pace. So uh, do you think that is something, what, what, should we, what should we know about pace, especially with regards to a young team? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of young teams would prefer to get out and run in part because they have the conditioning and the energy to do it, but also because that means you're contained less than the half court. You're having to make, you know, not as many hard decisions and reads with backside defenders and the defense actually set. And like, it's just going to be a major culture change going from the way that Dame kind of prefers to play to versus how Scoot prefers to play. I mean, I've been watching a Pacer team the last few years that's, you know, last year in particular ranks, you know, top five in transition frequency. They're pushing off makes and pushing off misses very high in pace. So pace is probably the easiest way to measure that on NBA.com is if you like the easiest way to compare it to the rest of the league is to look at that number. So that's that's the one that I would track and keep an eye on. And like what you said, like, like as far as Chauncey, like was Chauncey coaching the team to the style and how Dame wanted to play and adjusting that to how Dame needed to play. I mean, I know that he had some resistance to running just like spread pick and roll early on and eventually ended up tilting that back to like the way that Dame operates in the half court. But like, is Chauncey going to be open to a very up-tempo team and can he coach a very up-tempo team? I think that that will be somewhat reflective of coaching too, because he has the personnel to do it. He definitely has all of the personnel he needs to play fast. Will they play fast is always a question. Cause like, it feels like every team in the NBA goes to media day and it's like, Hey, we want to play fast this year, but not every team always accomplishes that. So. I think that Chauncey has said in the, even before this season that the, he prefers to play faster. Um, now it's, hard to like sometimes match this man with his words or, or his, his actions with his words because we haven't really seen him as a head coach for very long and he's been in a yeah. lot of situations where like they're not actually playing the style of ball that they want to play um and you know before he was hired here he had had like one year as an assistant and no years as a head coach and so it's hard to know exactly what kind what his preferred style is because he hasn't really had a chance to try to implement it um so it's also a little bit of a measure i think of our of our, not just our players but like our coach and like what style he is most comfortable um trying to get the team to successful in because 
you know, some, some coaches definitely like they, they prefer maybe to play a certain way, but then they see the, the schemes that the other schemes they want to run or like how people are maybe successful early on in the season. And then they adjust the, the style that they're going to play with that particular group. And I think we saw that a little bit last year when the Blazers started hot. Um, and then, you know, it was like a bunch of, a bunch of, a bunch of things happened, but you know, the, I think that the style changed a lot like, like at, based on like what happened at the beginning of the season. And then we saw it change again, like mid season when like they cooled off. Um, but we really just, we haven't really had a full season to look at him and what kind of, what kind of, what kind of game he wants to actually bring because he's always been kind of playing to a, to a situation, responding to his team that's hot, responding to like, you know, knowing that they're not going to make the playoffs, knowing that they have to like make some gambles. Like when they were like kind of on the edge of like the play in, they were like, I don't know, like they, they did some weird stuff in that time when they were trying to win and just losing close. And, you know, I, I'm very interested in what happens finally this season. Cause I think that this is where like the rubber hits the road and like your coach has all the personnel that he could possibly want. Hopefully he's been involved in the, the transactions so that he's getting like the types of guys that he thinks fit what he, what he wants to do and i don't know like there's there's really no more excuses that you can possibly throw out there at this point so to recap what we've come up with so far we've got dunks and fast break points free throw attempt rate fouls pace and then we have some individual stats for eight which um i have written down his self-creation um and then there was also one for um for scoot his pull up two percent rate and um what, what are some other things that you think would be helpful for tracking a young team i mean i think you're just looking for areas where individuals could still show growth so like another one i would bring up like if robert williams is still going to be on the roster and be potentially playing as a backup five like sometimes at boston he showed some playmaking chops and some of that can be limiting because he he doesn't have much offense of his own outside of the restricted area. So if a team like top locks it, you're not going to get those open as much, but like, I do think that he can do more as somewhat of a hub than what he was always able to do with Boston. And then also like, does he have like a float shot that he can hit so that when he is rolling, like if teams play back and they don't tag up on him, does he have a counter for that? And that looked like some of the workout videos that I had seen on Boston that he was kind of really looking to see if he could kind of get like a shot in the short roll area. So if you look in like the floater range area, if you go to the um, shooting stats and shooting splits, like outside of the restricted area. So like the non-restricted area of the paint, like does he start taking more shots from there or literally anywhere else outside of the restricted area that would show that he's added something else offensively. And then also like you can look at individual types of shots. So like, is he attempting any hook shots? Like, is he doing anything in the post? That's like in terms of his ability to create, I think that that would show that he's made some steps forward. Um, Another number I might look at individually the two-man defensive rating when Anthony and Scoot are on the floor together. So, like, if you go to lineups and pick two-man combinations, not because you're expecting this young team to be great defensively, although I do think that it helps that you have added um, some of what Robert Williams can do defensively as, like, a roaming big man. But, like, I just think in the long term, I don't think that the Blazers need to be in a hurry to trade Anthony Simons by any means. I think it's actually going to be helpful this year that you can run him on ball and that he can do stuff in the pick and roll. But because they are two smaller guards, like, where is the long-term viability of that? Like, does it look like you can play other lineups around them to kind of insulate them? So keeping an eye on that number in the long term, I think, might be valid, too. Um, so that's probably another one that I would pick. And then Shaden, I know that you guys probably know that like when Portland went a little bit more development mode and Dame wasn't playing anymore last year, like they were doing more with Shaden in the pick and roll and he showed some kind of passing chops out of that. But like, I would imagine now with Anthony and Scoot out there that Shaden's probably going to be playing more off ball and he can shoot the heck out of the ball, but can he pass as like a secondary option? So I might be looking at how many passes he makes. Cause last year, I think he averaged like 15 passes per game, which is not very many so like how does he fit into a system when he's being used as like an off-ball guard and can he find his spots and kind of just move around those players gravity I think is another one and then also like with Jeremy like I think Jeremy's probably is who he is at this point like I wouldn't anticipate that he's suddenly going to become like a passer or some awesome rebounder or something but you know when you lose Dame those shots have to go somewhere like they're going to get redistributed probably across a couple different players, but I would guess that Jeremy's going to take most of them on. So last year with Portland, Jeremy's like 
true shooting percentage was one of the highest in his career because he got to play off of Dame's gravity. If Dame isn't there anymore and those shots get redistributed to Jeremy, like what happens to his true shooting percentage when his usage rate goes up? Like, is he still as efficient as a player when more of that is back on his shoulder, similar to what his role was in Detroit? And again, like I don't always like to think about players in terms of the sense of trades, but if it does get to the point where they think that they might want to flip Jeremy down the road, like him being able to maintain his efficiency on higher volume, I think would be attractive to teams. Yeah, I had a thought. Do we want to... Um, so I was thinking about this a little bit because Dame was a really good rim finisher, um, but it can be very hard to be a good rim, good rim finisher. Like he, he worked a lot of his career to become that efficient at the rim. Do we want to look at rim efficiency? Because we now we have like two big men who can play the paint in a way that like, I mean, Nurkic played in the paint, but like, I just keep thinking about him like, oh, Phoenix was frustrated with Aiden passing up dunks. Wait till you meet our man Nurk. But I'm curious if maybe like we're like we can maintain any kind of rim efficiency without Dame to do it. Like, what can these other guys do? What could and we're gonna have we're gonna have like a good like I think we have like a good combination of guys that are like we have like guys who drive we have big guys who can finish in the paint like can we have good rim efficiency on a young team where there's no Dame because Dame I think like he accounted for a lot of our rim efficiency as a team like in in like if you looked at just the individual stat of Dame that'll tell you most of what happened around the rim because Nurk was not really that guy and Drew was not really that guy either like we just didn't have those those bigs who could do that who contributed that way and that's a good one to look at too like i'm glad that you brought that up because dames like even when he isn't the person finishing his own gravity is going to pull people away from the rim and help that for other people so when he isn't out there like anthony has gravity too like people are going to blitz him in the pick and roll to a degree as well not to the same degree as dame but like when that isn't there anymore what happens to the rim frequency for the rest of the team Cause like, I mean, I do think it's kind of funny. Cause like, I just think that Aiton overall is a better offensive player than Nurkic. So like, I understand why Phoenix was ready to sever that relationship and move on. And also like the contractual implications of it. But I do wonder, as you pointed out, what the reaction will be when Nurkic has like 22 dunks and isn't exactly somebody who's known for his uh, aggressive rim finishing and, and efficient rim finishing once um, he's playing over there. So like that, I do think that would be a good one to measure as well for about, for a number of reasons. Is there a team rim efficiency or is that a, an individual one? No, like, guess... yeah, team. I think you could look at it either way. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, if you go into the shooting stats for the teams, like there should be a conversion rate in the restricted area. And if you go to PVP stats, they definitely do. It'll just be under rim frequency and rim field goal percentage as well. Nice. Well, thinking about young teams, I had one last one that I think, I think all of this is what's going to be clear, especially if we do it game by game is that this is not going to be linear because they'll, Mm -hmm. they might like one thing might not be in the, on the scouting report and they can exploit that for a little while. And then as soon as it gets on the report, it's that, you know, that's going to go away and then it's going to change as they try something else. So I'm thinking turnovers is something that, uh, we could learn from tracking and I'm not expecting that it's like suddenly it's going to be really high and then it's going to be really low, but just sort of like seeing where they are in their progression might be something that we could track. Yeah. And you know, young teams, I think that you tend to bake in a little bit higher of a turnover rate for young teams and especially teams that have creators like what Scoot can do as a passer and finding passing angles. Like sometimes, you know, having a little bit of a higher turnover rate can be okay if you're being an adventurous passer. Cause I think generally you like people who try stuff a little bit more than people who maybe keep that turnover really low, but are like, I call this the Darren Collison corollary. Like when he played for the Pacers, he had like the highest assisted turnover rate in the NBA, but like he wasn't going to make any dangerous passes pretty much ever. So like he wasn't really shifting the defense. So um, yeah, like you, you want it to keep it low because that does help your defense. But at the same time, like if certain, like if, if Scoot or Shaden were to have a little bit higher turnover rates, but they're actually trying things as passers, you accept it. You accept the trade-off. Okay, so my my nights after the games just got longer because we added some, some additional stats to what I tracked last year. But that's okay. We're going to have all the time in the world that these uh, young fellas need to show us what they've got. I'm wondering if you could leave us kind of with a final, what's something that we can look for that like if it's happening, we can be like, oh, well, this is a good thing. Like what's what are some of the some, some positive signs for young teams that we may look at in three months or 
at the end of the season then we might be like oh that seems like they really put that together give give us some uh give us some ideas on um what hope we <laughs> what we can hope for yeah, but I think it was an adjustment period for me the last two years going from covering a team that wasn't necessarily going for it because the Pacers have always kind of been billed as like, I don't necessarily agree with it, but like the model of mediocrity and that they're always trying to be a tough out. So you're kind of always accepting that they were going to try to get to the playoffs and be a tough out in the playoffs. And like, how do you adjust those expectations? And to a certain degree, it was almost like freeing. Like, I think that there can almost be like a fun element to this for Blazers fans moving on from how draining the last few months, I'm sure were of following trade rumors nonstop every other day. And like just getting to enjoy what those guys are doing and learning and hopefully making individual steps. And I think that that's what I would just really try to bring home. Like, I don't think that this is a terrible basketball team by any means. I mean, they got players back in exchange for Dame. They didn't just, you know, sell him off for picks and take everything down to the studs. So I think that you're just looking for individual steps of growth from the young players on the roster. And a lot of the markers that I already brought up is kind of what I would be looking at. Like I know different team, but like Rick Carlisle was asked, like, how would you define success for the Pacers last year? And he was basically like, for the people who evaluate our team and analyze our team that month over month, you can see that we were better than we were last month or that guys are trying to improve at a specific skill or whatever that is. So like, that's what I would tell Blazers fans to just keep a focus on that. It's, it's, it's the reverse of what you would normally say when you're told to look for forests instead of trees, look for the trees instead of the forest and all the fall colors and all of their glory. I love that so much um, because you know, like I, one of the things Tara and I always talk about is like how, like, you know, 29 teams every year don't win a championship. And so mm -hmm. like, what can you look forward to like and enjoy your season and feel like it was like, it brought you joy and things were, that were like really positive that aren't winning a championship. And so sometimes you're right. You just got to stop and look at that tree and be like, that's a great tree. So Caitlin, at the end of every episode, we ask people to uh, give a take because this podcast is called We Have a Take. It can be basketball re related. It can be not basketball related. But you, this is your chance to share a take, a, an opinion that you have, one that you like hold strongly or not strongly at all, as we sometimes do, but just something we want to put out there into the world. So I will start today. Tara, what's your take? I, I, I'm trying to debate whether or not I want to say this out loud, but I've been thinking about it a whole lot and I'm worried about Nurkic and Phoenix and I'm worried about the fans and uh, I, but my hope is that after a rocky start, once they realize that he's brought come in to have like a really specific role and he's embraced that really specific and more narrow role than he had before, I think it will end up being um, a success. And I think people will come around to him. Um, so that is my take that it's going to be a rough start in Phoenix for Nurkic, but I think ultimately things could turn out well and they could be happy and understand what Nurk fever is all about. <laughs> I think it's a reasonable take and it's something that I worry about a little bit too, especially, you know, when I hear how much, how much dissatisfaction um, fans had with DeAndre Ayton. I mean, I kind of think that he was like, put it, he, he was, he was kind of going to be a scapegoat because he was around so many stars. And so when you're looking for somebody to be like the right fit piece around all those guys, it's really easy to find a problem with this guy who's like not your first or your second option. And you're like, why aren't you feeling your role better? Even though it's like a very specific role. And I'm curious what he's going to be like here when the, that is not as defined for him. Like what kind of role he like needs to fill in around these guys who are like, like more or less made players with made games that you're trying to maximize. But yeah, I'm a little nervous for Nurk too. But I hope that everybody loves him the way that we did, or at least in some of the ways that we loved him, because I want it to be a good experience for him. He hasn't been on another, like, he was on, Bla on Blazer for so many years. Like he's been in Denver, he's been here, and that is it. Like, it, I don't know. I just, I hope that a new fan base can see what, what we liked about him and also like all of the positives that he can bring um, in, a, in, a, in a role where I think the center is not going to be like the featured position. You know, like the way Rolo used to play in Portland, like he wasn't like the featured guy on that team because he was around LaMarcus and Dame and Wes Matthews and Nick Batum. But like he played his role well and it was the right size for him at that time. So I, I agree with you about that, Tara. And I think that that bodes well in his favor because my guess is he's going to be more accepting of that than what 
Aiton was as somebody who was drafted number one overall and kind of felt like, you know, why am I not getting more? And and that's coming and going across fans, seeing that he isn't always the most consistent. They don't really feel like they can trust him. So for Aiton's case, getting a fresh start in Portland where there's less expectations and maybe more opportunity for him to experiment and grow out his game versus Nurkic potentially, I mean, I think pretty strongly going to the best team that he's been on and probably being willing to accept taking a lesser role to play around those guys for the sake of that. They're just in different spots in their career. So um, hopefully it comes around. We'll cross our fingers for Nurk because we love him. Caitlin, what's your take? Okay, so my take's probably not going to be popular. I don't have a lot of thoughts about jerseys. My one thought about jerseys is, though, that there are too many jerseys. Like, we need to stop having a new one every single year. And we need to stop, like, I don't think that I should have to look up the reason why a jersey is something. So, like, one leaked about the Pacers, and it looks like kind of teal splatter paint, and, like, they haven't officially released it, so I don't know the reason for this. I don't know why there's teal splatter paint on it, but, like, I don't feel like I should need to know the reason for this. I feel like it should just be a jersey that I can clearly tell that's a Pacers jersey. There's too many jerseys. I love this take. I also think like one, so I love your point about how you shouldn't have to look up why it's a Jersey. I also think it shouldn't matter why it's the Jersey because it should still look good. Even if there's a reason why it looks the way it does, if it doesn't look good without knowing the reason, then like, I don't, I don't care about that Jersey at all. And this is what's happening. Like they're not looking good anymore because they're having to grasp at straws to continue creating so many new designs. Yeah, I'm not sure they thought that one through, you know, <laughs> like when the year in year five of ever, like 30 teams having to have this many jerseys. I Some of the ones that I've seen leaked this this year, it just kind of looks like, well, let's just change the font and move it down to the left. <laughs> and it's like, I don't know what you're doing. I have to say, so I, in for the most part, totally agree with that take. The exception is last year. So last year, Portland got these carpet jerseys and the, the Portland carpet in the airport has always been a thing, not always, but for years has been a thing in Portland. And then that kind of like fizzled out like, you know, seven or eight years ago, nobody really cared about the carpet anymore. They replaced the carpet. They have a new carpet. You still take a picture of your shoes in the airport, whatever carpet's over. And so when they released the carpet jerseys last year, I had a lot of skepticism. There was a lot of skepticism and we were like, oh my God, we're seven years too late with this. Why are we doing this? It's not even the right colors, blah, 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 blah. And then they came out and these were the most fantastic looking, in my opinion, fantastic looking jerseys. They popped, they were bright. You knew that they were Portland. And then all the like accompanying merchandise was so cute, like the beanies and the t-shirts and everything that fit into that. So I think in that one particular case, they surprised me anyway by hitting it out of the park. But I just think that that and like remember with the Miami Vice ones, like those yeah. were brilliant when they first came out. Like, how fun is that? But like, but this every reinforces year... <laughs> the point though. There's too many jerseys because now you don't yeah. have that one again. It will be replaced automatically, even though it was good. And like this play, this will probably play really well in a Blazers podcast. We don't need a jersey that says Heat Culture. There does not need yeah. to be a Heat Culture jersey. <laughs> But I love how it looks, though, because it's like, oh, I don't know. It was not my favorite. No, it's <laughs> thought, cringy. It's cringy. I thought they tried as hard on that jersey as they tried to get Damian Lillard. <laughs> oh, zing. <laughs> I I was going to say, I so I remember they redid the Miami Vice jersey another year, like in different colors, where they, I think they reversed the pink and the blue or something. But like, you're right, Caitlin, it goes away and everybody would still love to buy that jersey, but it's no longer in the rotation and it's going to be replaced. Like, if you think about it, like when Nike first got this contract, they probably had like big lists for every team, but now they're down on like option seven and eight and nine. And they're like looking at like, ooh, like we used up all the good ones in the first couple of seasons. And now we're stuck having to like iterate on like some of our like seventh and eighth and ninth options that were not so good. And we probably would never have made except for the fact that now we have to keep like dreaming up new jerseys. And like, I don't know about you guys, but like I keep getting really thrown off by the fact that those jerseys are not team colors now. Like a lot of them are not in their team colors. And I'm like, who's playing and why? Like, like I forget which, which team was playing this last year but I remember seeing a game where there was like somebody was playing in the OKC colors but it wasn't OKC and OKC was playing in a different color and I'm like this is throwing my my brain off because I'm like 
I know what to look at in an OKC game and it's orange and blue and this other team is in orange and blue. And I like it was very hard for me to watch that game because I couldn't ever figure out like who I was watching and who I was looking at. And I'm like, this doesn't look like this team at all. Like, I don't think that we should have team jerseys that are in other teams colors. I think that that is very sketchy. Oh, and we proliferate all of these new jerseys for every team, but they won't make a Christmas Day jersey anymore. The one time we want a special jersey and you won't make Christmas jerseys? I don't know. That just seems like bad business, too, because people love to gift Christmas jerseys during the holidays. Exactly. I don't know, Nike. You got a lot of explaining to do with your your sales tactics. Do you think they'll have special jerseys for the in-season tournament championship? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I can't wait for the in-season tournament. I'm sorry. I'm going to take another take. I can't wait for the in-season tournament to turn out to be super fun. And everybody who spent all this time complaining about it is going to be like, oh, actually, that wasn't so bad. Because I don't know why you would complain about it, but I've heard so many people say they don't like it. They don't get it. It's like, who cares? It's just, it's something to watch for in the beginning of the season. I think it'll be fun. So that's my second take. Rose, I'm sorry. I stepped on your take. No, you're fine. Actually, you know, what's really funny is I, my take is about the in-season tournament and here, (laughs) because I've been thinking about like, okay, what's different about this season? And I remember how, like, remember when they started doing the all-star draft? So first it was like, they, they got rid of East and West and then they started doing the all-star draft and then they realized, oh, we should televise this. And everybody thought that was going to be a terrible idea. Well, it turned out it's actually brilliant and everybody loves watching it. And you know what? Like, I think that people are going to feel the same way about the in-season tournament. But my particular take about the in-season tournament is this. That is exactly the type of things that Blazers fans can like dial it up to 11 to like perform well in an in-season tournament. Because like we go crazy about like summer league championships. And I'm like, this is the right size for us right now with this team to get like absolutely bananas about something that's very silly but fun. Like, I am so excited to go all out for, like, in-season tournament stuff because it's, like, a championship that doesn't matter. And that's, like, we we thrive in that space. And especially with a young team, that is absolutely something we can look forward to. We can be, like, we outperform, like, you know, like, we, we outperformed what we, people thought would happen in the in-season tournament for us. Like, coming in second in the in-season tournament is absolutely something I can go nuts for. So that's my take. And everyone's going to say it's gimmicky until their team wins it. Once their team wins it, they're going to be prepared to have the parade route planned and their championship tees on and probably some gimmicky rings too, because like then it's going to (laughs) matter. Okay. As an owner of one of those gimmicky rings, I absolutely say yes. (laughs) I I don't have it on right now, but I do have my Blazers Summer League Championship ring that I wear around my... um, Uh, around my neck and just this morning I was thinking how I can't wait until I get my you know first annual in-season tournament championship shirt that they're going to of course have to name after Joe Cronin the Cronin Cup that's my opinion will you go to Vegas when the Blazers are playing in the championship (laughs) oh absolutely (laughs) man why does it have to be in Vegas though like we already do summer league in Vegas we should do it somewhere else and like when, you know, I know that everyone's talking about like, you know, Vegas is a good, like, is like at the, toward the top of the list for expansion teams. Like when a team actually plays there, are we still going to play all this stuff in Vegas? Got to find a new location. Maybe they'll go back to Disney World. <laughs> I called it like the Disney Those are Cup good questions. Indianapolis is the obvious answer. The all-star game is here. They should be playing the in-season tournament here as well. <laughs> Oh, that's an interesting idea. Are you excited for that? I actually am. Like I, I grew when I was growing up, I really enjoyed watching the All-Star game. And then as an adult, I became jaded towards it and was like, you know, this actually isn't that great. But like I'm gonna go. Like I'm gonna go see what's going on that weekend and see what how the NBA puts the event on. I mean, I will say that like every room in downtown India is already booked. It's been booked for like months. Like because they sell like exp- th- three-day weekend experiences for like for corporate and stuff like the pricing is insane so like in order to go down there if people want to come you're gonna have to stay several miles outside the city but i'm excited for it indy does indy puts on events really well there's green spaces it's super walkable there's skywalk so i'm gonna check it out that should be my other take looking forward to the all-star game in indy (laughs) that's so awesome portland's still we're still waiting for our all-star game we still haven't posted an all-star game 
I, I just had an idea and I want to run this by you before I forget about it because uh, after this podcast, I will like leave my brain forever. What if the in-season tournament was hosted by cities who want teams? Not cities who have teams, cities who want teams so they can show what they can do with an in-season tournament. Because here's the thing, they don't have basketball. They have every reason for every basketball fan to show up and support the in-season tournament and make it like an awesome event. And it also shows like what kind of thing the city can coordinate and put together. Because like Seattle, like imagine if they were like hosting like an in-season tournament in Seattle. Like imagine if they're hosting an in-season tournament in, I mean, obviously Vegas, they're already doing Vegas stuff, but like this gives them an opportunity to show off that yes, we have basketball culture here and yes, we can, well, we will do right by a franchise here. So give us one. Anyway, it was just- put it put it in Lexington, Kentucky. And see if if Kentucky if UK mm-hmm. fans will show up for the NBA like they do for Kentucky basketball. Like you're hosting this, you can finally watch Shaden Sharp. I think play. that would be cool. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> ah, oh, burn! We're good with the burns today. Well, I think we better wrap it up on a high note. And uh, this was been this has been really fun, Caitlin. Thank you so much for coming on and helping us uh, talk to things, letting us get to know Malcolm Brogdon a little bit. We talked a little bit at the beginning about your uh, Patreon basketball. She wrote, "Where else can people find you if they want to see your work?" Right. So I'm still on on Twitter slash X. I can't be found on other social networks as of now. Well, I guess I do have a Threads account, but I'm not really using it. So as C2 underscore Cooper on X, if you go there, the link to my Patreon's in my bio and everything else is housed there. So no no current podcast. I just go around and hopefully don't ruin other people's podcasts as of right now. So, Well, I feel like you made ours better. So thank you so much for your time uh, with us today. Rose, Do you? Uh, where can people find you? Uh, they can find me at Roselle Harding on Twitter and at Roselle Harding on Blue Sky and at Roselle Harding on Instagram. Um, and they can also find me in the We Have a Take uh, Discord where we're watching Halloween movies this month, guys. So come join us. Or horror <laughs> movies. Horror movies. That's what we're watching. Tara, where can we All find right. you? All right. People can find me at TCB Biggs on Twitter and everything else. And you can find the We Have a Take podcast at We Have a Take on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you, everyone, so much for joining us. Thank you, everyone who listens to us. We appreciate you so much. We are getting so close to watching Blazer basketball again and can't wait to see what this season is going to be like. So thanks again to everybody. Thanks to Caitlin. And go Blazers! Go Blazers!